morning we continue in Mark, particularly Mark chapter 12. Um, we have been looking at the last week of Christ's life. We've been going in and out. Jesus has been going in and out of Jerusalem and the temple, particularly causing a lot of discomfort, particularly to those religious leaders. And this morning we're going to look at a situation where the religious leaders think they have Jesus trapped. Um, and it's a verse we're going to look at in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And the title is, To God, Things That Are God's. Before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, we pray that you would help us to pay attention to you. I know many that come in this morning on Sundays have so many things going on outside these doors and their lives, their situations, their circumstances. Many of us are busy and we're pulled to this thing and that thing, to these people and that people. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would help us in the midst of all that to be still and to be attentive to your Spirit who desires to teach us in all wisdom and all truth and not just for information that we can know, but for information that we can live. And so, God, we trust you this morning to speak to our hearts, to challenge us and encourage us, to equip us. Would you take a minute and pray for the person beside you, in front of you, around you, that they would hear from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him, him being Jesus, in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful? To pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a Daenerys to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now this morning we see that there has been a series of questions in the previous chapters that would prove the beginning of, of, of questions that continue in chapter 12. Previously we read at the end of Mark how when questioned about his authority, Jesus silenced all three groups, the priests, the scribes, the elders that were against him, and he answered them with an unquestionable answer that he answered himself. And then he tells this parable, this prophetic parable of the vine growers, which were the religious leaders, and he says that he has a plan for the vine growers, and God has a plan for the vine growers. Mark 12, verse 9 says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. And we'll give the vineyard to others. So there's this there's tone, this, this tension that continues to happen with Jesus and the religious leaders. 
And the overall thought in each case of the questions and the parables is this, that there is a repeated message Jesus is trying to get across. And as a consequence, there is a repeated and almost intensified rejection and rebellion to it. And so this morning we look at another conflict that's presented by the religious leaders. Now the religious leaders, like I said, think they have Jesus trapped. There's three things I want to look at. And the first one is this, that the enemies unite. Verse 13 says, And then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now when I was growing up, I played Dixie Youth Baseball, and I was pretty good. That was where you're supposed to go, oh, yeah, great. I didn't get the response like that in first service either, but it's not really happening. Anyway, we played for North Myrtle Beach, Dixie Youth, and we had rivals. Our rival was Georgetown, and our rival was Conway. But nobody liked to play against Surfside. In fact, whenever Georgetown played against Surfside, we pulled for Georgetown. Whenever Conway played for, against Surfside, we, play, we played for pool for Conway, even though they were our rivals. And that sort of thing happens even today, because I've heard people be like, well, I'm a, a USC Gamecock fan and anybody who plays against Clemson. I don't know who said it. I'm just saying that it's been said. <laughs> and what you see, this is the same kind of thing that's true in this passage with Jesus and the rivals that he is facing. Allies that were opponents prior to this. And what we see in this passage, as one author said, is there are two distinct powers which can bind people together. One is love, and the other is hate. Of course, love is to be preferred by far. It is the glue of the Holy Trinity. It's God's gift to the church. Nevertheless, hatred, though ultimately destructive and fragmenting, can serve as a devilish cement among otherwise diverse people. That hatred can serve as a devilish cement against otherwise diverse people. Now this group that confronted Jesus was made up in two parties that normally were not allies. In fact, scholars said they hated each other's guts. In fact, one commentator, one historian said that they would rather slit each other's throats than look at each other. They didn't like each other. The Herodians and the Pharisees. They were not joining together in love. They were joining together in hate of Jesus. And so they scheme and come together and come alongside of one of these, uh, each other, and they try to think, what could we do to trap Jesus? Now, the they that's mentioned in verse 13 is probably part of the Sanhedrin again. The Sanhedrin, if you remember, is the ruling body for the Jewish community. The Sanhedrin, they're composed of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And it's most likely the same group we looked at at the beginning of, of chapter 12. Now what's interesting too is in this word, uh, this, ver this verse 13 is this word sent, that they sent them. Now this word sent is the same word we get for apostle. As if the disciples were sent, they became apostles. They were sent. They weren't just messengers, they were sent with authority and empowerment. So the Herodians and the Pharisees are sent with power to trap Jesus. Now these two groups come together, the Pharisees and the Herodians. I want to take a look at the Pharisees first. Now the Pharisees, if you remember, were the self-ruling power for the Israelites. 
for all of Israel. They're the self-ruling power. And remember, the Jews are looking for a Messiah to set up a new kingdom, a new authority against who? Against Rome. They were hoping that Jesus was this new ruler, but he wasn't fitting into their mold. Now, the Pharisees are keepers of Jewish law. They loved Israel and they loved the law, but they loved their power over Israel even more. And while they didn't like the rule of Rome, they did like the rule they had over the people in Israel. And Jesus was a threat to their power. And so they hated Jesus because he was disturbing their religious agenda. Now there's the Herodians. The Herodians were loyal to the governing body of Rome. So think about this. Get this situation in your mind. The Pharisees, who can't stand Roman rule, are looking for a Messiah to overthrow the Roman government, are joining with the Herodians who are under the Roman rule to overthrow Jesus, the Messiah, who's standing in front of them. Two opposing people unified at destroying Jesus. It's crazy, right? Now, perhaps the Herodians didn't like Jesus because they're still connected with John the Baptist, calling out Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded. In Luke 20, verse 20, Luke calls the Herodians spies, that they were sent as spies to figure out how they could trap Jesus. Pharisees hated Jesus because of the threat to their religious agenda. The Herodians hated Jesus because he threatened their political arrangement. Now these two groups joined together and were attempting him. Verse 13 says, trap him in a statement. They were trying to trap him in saying something, which we'll look at in just a minute. Jesus, for sure, was the most impressive opponent. Each time somebody had schemed up a plan to trap Jesus, they were unsuccessful. In fact, not only were they unsuccessful, it proved that they were incompetent, and a lot of times proved that they were foolish, and it embarrassed them. Now, I, just, I would just love for, to be a fly on the wall when these two groups got together. And they started brainstorming, and they kind of put up a whiteboard. and was like, what do you think will work? Anybody got any ideas? What do you think will work? What do you think will work? And they start brainstorming with all these ideas of how to trap Jesus. Nothing had worked. Pharisees were behind this verbal entrapment. They were the ones that were going to get Jesus to say something. Now, remember who the Pharisees were. One author called them nothing more than superstitious religious formalists outwardly looking pious and godly. And remember what Jesus had said about them. All pretty whitewashed tombs on the outside, but dead bones on the inside. Now, the Herodians were men of the world. They cared about pleasing man and despising all religion. And so here you got these two opponents and you got Jesus in the middle who was neither religious, pious, formalist, or a man of the world. They wanted to see Jesus shut his mouth, is what one author said. Now, some of this we can see today in examples where countries and religions, normally with nothing much in common but standing in one common foe, and we see this in Israel. 
Think about it. People of the world and fake religious people rarely have anything in common and essentially have no use for each other. Their goals and focus are not the same. They dislike each other, but there's one thing they hate more than each other, and that's Jesus. The only thing that brought them together was their common enemy. And by the way, we see the same thing happen around the same time of Jesus and his crucifixion in Luke chapter 23, verse 12. Where it says, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before they had been enemies with each other. Common enemy, Jesus. One author said this, where there is pure gospel, you will see worldly men and women rise up against it. Their motive was not love, it wasn't compassion. They were united in hate. So what's the application for that? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I heard that a lot growing up. Be careful not to join together in hatred or destruction unless it is against Satan and the furthering of the gospel. Now notice what we see with the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's the way of the world. They're uniting in hate. And what does Jesus say? Unite in love and love your enemies, not hate them. So these two groups, they finalize their whiteboard discussion, and they come up with a trick and a trap. In verse 14 it says, They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a Daenerys to look at. After all the other ideas, they come up with this plan, which shows and reveals the spirit and attitude of these men. Now this word implies that there's deceit, and there's trickery, and there's a trap. It often referred to catching an animal or a snare. When I was a kid growing up, we used to do rabbit gums. Anybody ever heard of rabbit gums? Well, good, you're going to learn something this morning about a rabbit gum. Rabbit gums were a rabbit trap. It was a hollowed log with an end on it, and it had a door on the front that had a, 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 a kind of a, a stick that held it open. And you would take these apples or anything that rabbits like to eat, and you threw it in the back of the, the little rabbit gum or the hole or the, or the box you built, and the rabbit would go in small enough where he couldn't turn around, and he would trip the thing, and the door would fall down, and you've caught your rabbit. That's the picture of what's happening with Jesus. Now, the apple is the question. Should we pay a tax? And they're trying to lure Jesus into this trap to get him to answer. Now, I, I wasn't there, obviously, and you weren't either, but do, can't you just kind of picture what it might look like? I, I try to think, was Jesus sitting down? Was he standing up? Was he looking at him? How was he looking at him? And what were the faces of the Pharisees and the Herodians? What was their faces like? Just turn to the person beside you and give, you, give them the face that you thought the Pharisees had on right now. First service did a pretty good job with it, too. It was pretty good. Notice how Jesus notices something about them. Verse 14 says, Jesus knew 
their hypocrisy. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. What was their hypocrisy? Remember what they said, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God. Now, do you think that they believed that? Do you think they believed that Jesus was truthful or translated in the Greek as integrity and that he deferred to no one, meaning that no public opinion mattered to him? Do you think they really believed that about Jesus? I doubt it. One author said it this way, Their lips dripped with insincere flattery as they attempted to appear as innocent inquirers. Oh, that they would have just believed what they said. The statement about Jesus is true. He defers to no one. He's not partial to any. He teaches the way of God. All of what they said about him was true. They just didn't believe it. And Jesus saw their hypocrisy. And he says, why do you try to test and trap me? I also think it's pretty interesting here that you don't see a response from the Pharisees or the Herodians. I think the application for us here is this, is that Jesus knows our hypocrisies as well. He knows what we say about Jesus, and he also knows how we live about what we say about Jesus. Matthew says that Jesus perceived their wickedness, and Luke says that Jesus perceived their craftiness. So what was the trap? There was a question about taxes. Now, what comes to mind when you think about taxes? Don't say it, don't say it out loud. The question is verse 14. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? There's some history behind this question. The tax was a poll tax. It was payable to the Roman government. It wasn't a temple tax. It wasn't a tithe. It was a tax that was going to be going to the secular Roman government. And it was placed there at the early part of uh, the turn of the, uh, the, the, when Jesus was first on the scene in around 6 A.D. And the amount required to pay this poll tax, we learn, was a denarius. And Matthew tells us that a denarius was about a day's wage. Now, the question about whether to pay this tax, particularly from the Jewish community, was always in question because the tax was going to go to a Roman government. And so at first glance, the Pharisees and the Herodians come together and they think they give Jesus two options. Choice A, pay the tax. Now, if Jesus says... I'm going to pay the tax, he would be bowing down to Israel's conquerors to the Roman government. He would be going against Israel and their pride and their traditions and their convictions of the Jewish nation. The Jewish leaders would have jumped all over Jesus for this. And that's what the Pharisees were waiting to hear. So if Jesus said pay the tax, it would be recognized that he was agreeing to the authority and kingship of Rome. It would somehow show in some way show defeat or a submission to defeat. Now, remember, who is around Jesus right now? His disciples. Jesus was always in teacher mode because after he was going to be gone, the disciples were going to have to face these guys again. And so as he is talking, he is also teaching the disciples if Jesus said to pay the tax, he would be acknowledging a foreign rule over Jewish people. And Jesus knew the law of God. 
Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. Be sure to appoint, you, appoint over you a king, and the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you who is not an Israelite. So to pay this tax would be violating the law in the Pharisees' minds. So to say yes to the tax, Jesus offends and goes against the Pharisees and the law of God. That's choice A. Choice B is to not pay the tax. Now, had he acknowledged the unlawfulness of the tax, he would have been offending the Roman authorities. Acts chapter 5, verse 37, we learn that Judas from Galilee is killed for inciting a riot against Rome. And so the Herodians could have looked at Jesus and said, if you're not going to pay a tax with your friends here, then you are inciting a riot. And so there's this dilemma. To say no to the tax would defy the Herodians in the government. So the words that Jesus chooses about this tax is important and it's sensitive. And we see the trickery and the trap they're trying to bring to Jesus. We would say that he's in a tight spot and he's in a rock and a hard place. But Jesus always has a plan C. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation or trap or test or trickery has overtaken you what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now here in this passage, it looks like the Pharisees and the Herodians are looking for something particular. since specific. It's Jesus' words, his speech. They were trying to catch him in a statement, Mark says, Luke says, speech. It led me to think about something. How many of you have ever said something that you wish you could take back? How many of you have said something and, it, and the tone just was like, oh, that wasn't right, whatever I wanted it to say. How many of you, after saying it, wish you would have said nothing at all? Our mouths and words can get us in trouble. That's where you say amen. It led me to think of this passage in James chapter 5, verses 3 through, uh, James, verses, James 3, verses 5 through 6, from the message. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By your speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony into chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. And then verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now think back in this passage in Mark, Jesus. It helps me know for sure that Jesus is God because he tamed his tongue in this situation. And he tamed his tongue in every situation. Everything Jesus said was perfect at all times. No one can tame the tongue except Jesus. And at first glance, it looked that the Herodians and the Pharisees give Jesus only two options. But Jesus has a plan C, and look at his answer. 
in verses 15 through 17. But before we read that again, how would you have answered if you were Jesus? Knowing the history, knowing the background, what would you have said? Would you have ignored it? Kind of walked away? Run away? Listen to Jesus' answer. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a Daenerys to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness is inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they were amazed at him. They ask him this question about taxes, and Jesus calls for a coin. Now, notice something interesting, that Jesus didn't have a coin on him. And he calls for a coin, and here's a picture of the coin. Now, Daenerys was a Roman silver coin bearing the image of the, their mind, semi-divine Tiberius Caesar. On it was this Latin inscription that meant Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The reverse side of the coin had the image of Tiberius's mother, and inscription was translated as high priest. Because Caesar, or the emperor, was not only seen as a supreme uh, political person, but also was seen as some divine person. Now, the Jews considered this coin and this image or impression a pagan image in practice. In some ways, they thought it was blasphemy, which is why this question is a huge question and trap for Jesus. Some scholars say that the Jews wouldn't even look at the coin, much less hold one. And Jesus asked, whose picture is on it? They said, Caesar's. Now, because the coin had Caesar's image on it, then it ultimately belonged to Caesar. Then comes the amazing response. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are of God. Jesus gives a vivid picture and teaches us two things. First, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, how would they have answered that question? What is Caesar's? How do we answer that question? It's important to clarify that governments have their very useful and necessary purposes and place in the world, in our country, and in our lives. Living in a society without law and enforcement of those laws would inevitably lead to chaos and turmoil. There are many valuable services that our governments provide for us, from our cities, to our counties, to our state, to our federal. Think about, just for a minute, if we didn't have any government services when we walked out of here. No police, no fire, no paramedics. The government, in its origin of many things, makes safe livable. But government is limited in its duration and its scope. Scripture tells us that all human governments are ordained or appointed by God. In other words, governments that exist do not surprise God. But that doesn't mean that all governments are godly. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 
God is behind all governments, good and bad. Now, King Peter, uh, the King Peter was referring to in this passage was none other than Nero. The terrible, terrible Nero. And yet Peter encourages first century Christian churches to submit to the authority. And with that in mind, Jesus reminds us that human government only has limited authority over men and women. Certain powers, but only certain powers. So I want to encourage us as a church to think about the good things that government provides. And to think of it this way. To be thankful for the things that government provides. Because God loves the people in government. That he created those people in government. That the people in government are like us, in need of a savior. And so our opinions and our difficulties with government that we talk about and hear about all the time should lead us to pray for our government, to be thankful for the things that they're providing, and to ask God to have his way in their hearts for his glory and for our good. And at the same time, we recognize that government rule has its limits. It can regulate some of our decisions. It can relate business practices. It can relate some of our actions. But there's one area, there's one arena that government can never regulate, and that is our soul. Who we worship. Who we put as our priority. Who we love. Jesus says certain things belong to Caesar or the government, and certain things belong to God. He was basically answering the Herodian side of the questions. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now notice, he says, and to God what is God. He doesn't say or. He says, and. Give to things that are Caesar's and the things that are God. We asked what is Caesar's, and now we ask what is God's. The author said this response shows the duties of government never infringes on the duties and sovereignty of God. Duty to Caesar and government is surpassed by duty to God. If there's ever a conflict of which to serve, serve God. Now what's really interesting is that Jesus uses this illustration of a coin and the word image. Where have we heard the word image before? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. All of humanity, everyone in this room, bears the image of God. And we are to give to God our very selves, our very lives. Some of us have a hard time believing that we bear the image of God or that the person beside us bears the image of God. Every one of us has been stamped with the image of God by God. We are his. So then we are to render to God what is God, including our lives, our liberties, our future, our hopes, our dreams. God owns it all. And he owns you and me. And I want to leave us with a few questions this morning. Are there people in your life that you've joined together with that the majority of your commonalities 
are criticism, gossip, arrogance, poor decision, and bad behavior. Let's just be honest for a second. Sometimes it is so easier to talk about what is wrong with something than what is right with something. To get with other people and talk about things that we hate versus talk about the things that we love. And so this morning I want to encourage you, church, to bind with one another and talk about the thing that you love, and that's the person of Jesus. More than talking about the things that you hate. The other question is this, where are you and I placing our dependence? Do we recognize that the government and its influence has a limit that God is our ultimate dependence? Do we understand that God owns it all? including us. We have been stamped by God with the image of God. Therefore, give to God what is God's. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage, this unique scene with Jesus, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the trap that they thought they had him in. I thank you for the clarity that he gives them and us. And so God, I pray that you help us recognize that we bear your image and that we belong to you. We trust you with the results of that. In Jesus' name, amen.